Well, um, kind of doing something on the fly here. I, as I was sitting there, I was thinking of a illustration that might be useful later on in the message, but I'm going to open the message with my illustration. This is really primarily for the kids. I didn't have a, uh, um, a little sermon for the kids today. Um, so I'm going to open the message by doing a little illustration, and like I said, this is going to tie in uh, very well with the message. Got to lay some towels out here. All right. You kids don't have to see the towels. This is just hopefully so that I uh, don't clean the carpet too much. You guys can see what that is. That's just a cup of water, okay? So if we were to illustrate this as being you, you're the cup, what's the inside? What is the water in this case? What do you think the water would represent? If the cup is you, what's the water? Jesus, okay. Yeah, Jesus living inside of us, that's good. It could be sin, yeah. Basically, the water is what's inside of you, right? So if you're the cup, then whatever is inside of you is what you're carrying, you might say. So as you're going along in life, you're walking along, everything's fine, you're keeping everything inside of you. But then some things start happening, and you start walking along, and stuff starts spilling out, right? Okay, now, the question that I have is, what caused... The water to spill out. Sin. Okay. Well, I was shaking my hand, wasn't I? And that caused that water to spill out. So we could say, it's the fault of that trial or that issue. Whatever it is, it was that fault. You could point the finger and say, because I had unsteady hands, that water fell out. That's partially true, but I'm going to ask it a little bit differently now. Why did water fall out of the cup? Why did water fall out of the cup? I didn't hear him. Since I shook it, that's true. But I'm emphasizing why was it water that fell out? Why wasn't it Kool-Aid that fell out? Why wasn't it chocolate syrup that fell out of the cup when I shook it? Yes, because there was water inside to begin with, right? So when we're walking along and something comes out of us, why does that come out of us? It's not because something shook us. What The reason is because it was already inside of us. It reveals what's inside of us. So if this cup wasn't clear and I started shaking it, then the shaking would reveal what was inside that cup. It would reveal what was coming out. And so that's um, going to be an illustration. We're going to look at a few scriptures here on that topic. And the first one I want to turn to is Mark chapter 7. So Andrew has been doing a series on, you might say, the essentials, uh, foundational truths, kind of some catechism questions and answers. 
And last week, um, he asked the question, what is sin? And today, I'm not going to continue on with kind of his catechism question and answer, but I'm going to talk on the subject of sin. It's really, I view it more of kind of a complement to um, this point that he's making of what is sin. And really, there's only going to be one point to the whole message, and I'm going to pretty much tell it right from the beginning, and then we're going to spend the rest of the time just looking in Scripture at where we see this taught in Scripture and trying to draw out some practical applications. And the point that I'm going to be making today is that sin is a heart problem. Sin is a heart problem. And it may seem kind of obvious, um, as if, you know, I already knew that, why do we need to talk about it? But I think as we look into Scripture and see this fleshed out a little bit more, hopefully we might be able to see some, um, maybe some points that we hadn't seen before or seen some application in our lives that we hadn't seen before. So let's start here in Mark chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 14 through 23. After he had called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him, because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is eliminated? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, That which proceeds out of the man... That is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man." So in this passage here, Jesus is addressing, obviously in the Jewish culture, they were particularly careful about what they took in. You know, they were to never touch a dead person because that would defile them. They were not to eat pork because that would defile them. And there were all these things that they weren't to receive. And if they did touch or take part in some way, they were unclean and they would have to go outside the camp. But Jesus is Uh, shifting the focus away from what comes in and is saying that's not what defiles. Nothing that you bring in is ultimately going to uh, defile you spiritually. Now maybe ceremonially it might defile you, but spiritually it's not going to defile you. But from what's inside your heart, that is what defiles. What comes from within is going to defile a person. And of course he... uh, fleshes that out by talking about evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, and so on. And so today I want to talk about the root of sin. Where does sin begin and what is the cause 
of sin. And I was thinking of some analogies here of some wrong thinking about sin. So just to preface this, these are a couple of wrong ideas about sin. Imagine you have some kind of machine, and it's a well-oiled, smoothly running machine. And then every once in a while, there's just this glitch in the system. It just, don't know what happened there, but there's a glitch. You take a look at it, can't figure it out, so you just keep on going, and this well-oiled machine just purrs along. But it's just one of those things. Chance happening, you just have this glitch from the outside that seems to interrupt uh, business as usual. Or, case in point today with our computer, you have a computer that seems to be running just fine. Everything's going all right, and every once in a while there's a bug in the system. Can't figure it out. It's not that it's a bad computer. It just has a bug every once in a while. You have to restart or you know hold your breath just right, and it comes back on, and everything's working fine. That is not the case with sin. Sin isn't just a glitch in an otherwise well-working machine, and it isn't just a bug in an otherwise perfectly fine computer. Sin doesn't happen in a vacuum. Um, It doesn't come from the outside upon a good person. Uh, You know, thinking about, you could, throughout this pandemic here, you had very healthy people. They had been taking care of their body, doing everything they could, and COVID-19 comes from the outside upon that person, right? They didn't necessarily have COVID-19 their whole life. They weren't born with COVID-19. They're going along just fine, living a healthy life, and COVID comes from the outside upon them. That's not the case with sin. It doesn't happen that way. If that were the case, think about this. Jesus would have sinned. Jesus was a good person. And if sin just comes upon us from the outside, then that would have been true for Jesus as well. And yet he never sinned. So where does sin come from? And our text says sin comes from within, out of the heart. Verse 21 there. For from within... Out of the heart of men proceeds, and then this description of list of some various sins. So all sin begins in the heart and comes from within. This isn't hard to see in other people, right? It's not hard to see in extreme cases. Maybe you've known someone or known of someone who their whole life, it seems like, just trouble after trouble, sin after sin, And people come alongside them to try and help them, to try and point them to what's right and true. And instead of receiving that help, they actually turn on the person who's trying to help them and pour out their wrath upon that person too. And eventually you just step back and say, this is an evil person. Everything that they, the help that you try and give to them, they don't want They're evil to the core. You know, these are some descriptions you might hear people talking about. And so obviously, if that's the case, then anything they do, if they're evil to the core, anything they do is going to be wicked and evil as well. Sin's just going to pour out of them. That's not hard to see in those extreme cases or, like I said, just when we're looking at other people. But what about us in our own life? When we sin... 
do we see that the sin indicates a problem in the heart, in our own heart? Usually, we are quick to pass the blame to something or someone else. I got upset because so-and-so did such-and-such. I get angry because I'm a very passionate person. That's just the type of person I am. I was born that way. I spoke harshly because it had just been a very stressful day. Do you see what that is? That's shifting the blame away from ourselves, away from the root cause, and placing it upon someone or something else, something outside of us, something we can't control. Kind of like the illustration with the cup. It's because it was shaking. No, the water that is pouring out is because that's what's inside of you. It's not the fault of the shaking. The shaking just reveals what's there. This pattern of excusing our sin goes all the way back to the first sin in the garden. And I want to just quickly turn to this in Genesis chapter 3. It's amazing how simple, you might say, the, the account in Genesis of Adam and Eve, how simple it is. It's not over, overly complex, and yet it applies so much. It's so foundational. All other sin flows out of this. This is a pattern in many ways of what sin in our life looks like. Genesis chapter 3, and I'm just going to focus, this is after... Um, Adam and Eve have taken the fruit um, that they were forbidden from. So start reading in verse 11. It says, And he, that is God, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So notice the answers that both Adam and Eve gave here as responding to God asking, what happened here? They actually were both true statements. The woman did give the fruit to Adam, and he ate. And the serpent did deceive the woman, and she ate. So what's missing here? Neither one of them saw or acknowledged that the source of their sin was inside of themselves. They were trying to nullify or or lessen the severity. Adam, why did you eat this fruit? What happened? It was her. She gave it to me. And then the woman, same thing. Why did you do this? It was a snake, the serpent. He deceived me. In other words, don't be angry at me. It's this situation that came upon me. Neither one said, I didn't believe God, what God said, and so I ate the fruit. Or, I had pride in my heart and thought I knew better than God and chose to eat the fruit. Because ultimately, that's what's going on. They thought they knew better. And so, they ate the fruit. They didn't believe what God had said. 
So instead, they shifted the blame away from themselves to something or someone else. And this is the case for each one of us whenever we sin and seek to point the finger somewhere else. Sin isn't the fault of the woman God gave you, and sin isn't the fault of the serpent who deceived you. Sin is a result of your own sinful heart. And when I say your, I'm including myself in that. It's the result of our own sinful heart. And scripture is very clear. Sin begins in the heart, it comes from within, and flows out. And this is very significant. Um, I don't want to just belabor the point that it's here, it's here, it's here. I want to bring out why is this important. If we are going to fight against sin, we can't just focus on the outward manifestations of sin. The outward manifestations of sin do need to be dealt with. So I am not saying just ignore the big, obvious problems, but I'm saying you can't just focus on the external manifestations only. It will be an endless battle if we never address the root issues, the root cause. What is the outward manifestation of sin that maybe you are struggling with worry and fear, anger, lust, gossip, the list could go on and on. These are all outward sin issues and they do need to be dealt with, but they all have their roots in the heart. They don't just begin at the fingertips, so to speak, or they don't just begin at the lips with what you're saying. It begins in the heart. The sin in the heart needs to be dealt with in order to ever find victory. And I'm going to go on here in just a minute, and we're going to look at some other passages uh, in the Bible that talk about this. But I want to start, or take a little aside here, um, and just address this. We're talking about sin beginning in the heart, but we, we really need to identify what is the heart. And the Bible uses different words to describe the heart. Uh, Sometimes it says mind. Sometimes it'll say inner man. Sometimes it'll say soul. Sometimes it'll just say heart. There's some uh, maybe King James type words that'll be thrown in every once in a while. The bowels talking again. It's just about the inner person. These all refer to the heart. The heart is the inner part of a person, the eternal part of a person. It is the source of thoughts, emotions, and decisions. And there are three aspects of the heart that I want to briefly mention. The first is the heart is cognitive, meaning it's thinking. It's where thinking takes place. The heart is affective, meaning it has affection, emotions, desires, And the heart is volitional, which means it has a will. So these three things, the heart is thinking, the the heart has emotion, and the heart has a will. So the first being the heart is cognitive, meaning it thinks. It receives and processes knowledge and information. And there's really, it's pretty amazing how many scripture verses that talk about the heart included in this category. And I'm just going to read you some of these. You don't need to turn. 
But in Matthew 9, 4, it says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your heart? The heart is thinking. You see that? Thinking evil, not, Jesus doesn't differentiate between the mind, the brain, and the heart. He lumps it all together and says, why are you thinking evil in your heart? Another one that is very similar, um, Luke 9, 47, Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood, by, stood him by his side. So again, th- this association of thinking with the heart. And then this is a good one here, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So what has shown into our hearts? God doesn't shine into our hearts warm, fuzzy feelings. We do have emotions in our hearts, but that's not what God came to, to shine into our hearts. He came to shine into our hearts the light of the knowledge, knowledge of who God is, who Christ is. So that's the heart is thinking, but then you have the heart is effective, which means it has emotion, it feels, it has desires. And again, Matthew 6.21, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What is treasure? Treasure is that thing that you desire most, that you value most. So whatever that is, whatever you treasure and desire most, that's where your heart's going to be because they're tied together, desire and heart. And then these are uh, these next three references are going to point more to what I would say emotions of the heart. Uh, John 14, 1, do not let your heart be troubled. So there can be a troubled heart. John 16, 6, because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And then John 16, 22, um, I will see you again and your heart will rejoice. So the heart has, um, is troubled. It can have sorrow. It can rejoice. And there's a whole load of other emotions that the heart can feel. And then finally, the heart is volitional, meaning it has a will. It makes choices in accordance with its will, right? None of us go along and decide, I don't want this, so I'm going to do it. Like, that's never the way we are. It's like, I want this, so I'm going to do it. Now, sometimes we choose things we don't want, but it's because of good reason. I'm going to exercise even though I don't want to because I know it's better for my health. Or I'm going to study even though I don't want to because I know that it's, it's what I need to do to pass the test or to be a good steward. So there's, I'm not saying everything we do is always what we want to do. But when faced with two equal choices, you're always going to choose what you want. Your, your desire, your will, and our heart has a will. Exodus seven fourteen, The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. You see that? His heart was totally set against what God wanted. 
it was stubborn, this, this will that would not bend to what God wanted. And he's saying it's his heart. His heart is stubborn. And then this, this next one is really pretty amazing. Acts chapter 5. Um, this is a familiar account here with Ananias and Sapphira. And if you remember, um, you know, everybody was selling their possessions and bringing them to the disciples and setting them at their feet. And, um, you know, the, the Spirit is moving in the New, the, the New Testament church here. And Ananias and Sapphira have this idea, like, what if we sell our land and hold back some of the money and then give the rest as if we gave it all? See, it's not that they, they weren't, Uh, punished or destroyed ultimately because they didn't give enough it's that they tried to lie and say that they had given it all when they hadn't given it all and so Peter is speaking here in verse 3 Acts 5 verse 3 and he says but Peter said Ananias why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land while it remained unsold did it not remain your own And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So Peter here in verse 4, he says, you've conceived this deed in your heart. In other words, it's like you thought this out. You planned this. Your will was being uh, revealed in your heart as you as you went about doing this thing. It wasn't just something that happened, I just stumbled in, in some way. No, it was planned out. There was a will involved in the heart. So the heart has these three characteristics. Again, just a reminder. It has the, the function of thinking and emotion and then also the will. And they don't function in isolation from one another They operate in conjunction with each other. And you might also say there's even a progression. What we think and the knowledge we process and what we believe does affect our emotions and our desires. And the emotions and the desires that we feel affect our will and the decisions that we make. So you can see there's this progression. The heart is all three of these things. The heart is not just the brain that processes information and thinks. The heart is not just the seat of our emotions. And the heart is not just the seat of our will. It's all of these things. And I bring this up to point out that when we say that sin begins in the heart, this is what we're saying. The heart involves all three of these things. And why does that matter? Why does it matter that our heart has three functions? It matters because oftentimes we like to separate things out and say, well, I love God, but I'm just struggling with my thoughts. Or I'm just struggling with my emotions and desires. And what we're doing is we're saying, my heart is right towards God. I just have this other issue outside of my heart. Again, it's kind of like it's shifting the blame away. I'm just struggling in my emotions. The Bible would say those struggles with your thoughts and with your emotions is 
a struggle of the heart. It is not separate from the heart. You are actually describing your own heart um, there. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 22, and I'm going to see if I can kind of illustrate what this looks like both positively and negatively. Last week, in Andrew's message, he brought out that sin is missing the mark. Remember that? It's not just about doing something bad, which that's true, that is sin, but there's also missing what you were created to do, what you were made to do. So doing the bad, but neglecting to do the good. Um, And he was bringing that out in last week's message, and I think this is a good illustration of that. So, uh, Matthew 22, begin reading in verse 35. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So notice with this verse um, here, verse 37, which this is, of course, uh, referring back to Deuteronomy there. Um, But we see that scripture uses three different terms, heart, soul, and mind. And actually, I think in Deuteronomy, it includes strength as well. It is not describing three different parts. It is just using three different terms to describe the heart. It is essentially saying that we are to love God with our whole being, with our heart, with our soul, with our mind. So it's just trying to encompass it all. If you're going to love God, if the supreme commandment is love God with your entire being, there's nothing that can be left out. You can't love God in this way and neglect to love him in this way. It has to be all-encompassing. But think with me. What does this look like practically if I'm loving God with my whole being or whole heart? As we just talked about, we've got cognitive, we've got uh, affections, and we have uh, volitional or the will. Well, first, it means that I am thinking right thoughts about God. I am bringing what is true about God into my heart and meditating on those things. Colossians 3, 2, set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. You see that? Setting your mind, intentionally setting your mind on what is uh, above, the things that are above. And then Philippians 4, 8, familiar verse, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, and it goes on, think on these things, those things that are true and right, that's what you're to set your mind on. Well, secondly, if we're going to love God with our whole heart, it also means that we are to have right emotions about God and towards God that my desires are in line with his word. This is important, that I'm desiring the things that are in accordance with his word. 
that we could say with the psalmist in uh, Psalm 73, verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. If that's true of you, then you are entering into that loving God with your whole heart. Nothing on earth do I desire except you. And then third and finally, my will has to be in complete submission to him. Right? We can't love God with our whole heart if our will is still our own. If we haven't given over our will to the Lord. Even Jesus, this is amazing, Jesus had his will completely laid down uh, for the Father. In Luke 22, it says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, the perfect Son of God, laid his will down and said, Lord, only your will. I only want your will. So, This is what it is to love God with our whole heart. It involves all of these things, the thoughts in our mind. It involves the the desires, the emotions in our heart, and it involves the will. I'm choosing to act and speak and think in ways that are in accord with his word. That is what it means to love God with my whole heart. So then what does it look like if we are sinning in this way? I'm not going to spend hardly any time on this, but just think about it. It's just the opposite. We are not thinking and believing right thoughts about God. Our desires are not in line with God's desires as found in his word. And our will is not in subjection to God. So when we uh, speak about sin beginning in the heart, this is what we're talking about. Sin affecting our thoughts our desires, and our will. And like I said last week with Andrew's message, I thought that was really good how he brought out. It's not just about avoiding the outward manifestation. Don't do this. Don't do this. But we're missing the thing we ought to be doing. And you see this here in this this idea of loving God. It's not just about avoiding doing all that's evil, but it's about actually loving God with our whole being. That's what we're striving for. Well, back to the the topic here of the uh, sin beginning in the heart. The Bible has a lot to say. We've already looked at Mark chapter 7. And we see it clearly in other passages in the New Testament. We're going to turn to some of them here in just a minute. But is the teaching of sin being a heart problem only found in the New Testament? Did the Old Testament and the law of Moses present sin as primarily a physical act? You know, think about the law. Don't steal. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. These outward things. Don't do this. Don't do that. That seems like it's all about the physical. Like, keep your hands to yourself. And don't steal. Those types of things. Well, no. The idea of sin being a problem of the heart is found all throughout the Old Testament. And I'm going to just point to a few passages here. We could spend a lot more time on this, but we're just going to look at a few. Back to Genesis, because, like I said earlier, it is just such a a good picture of, of 
how sin operates. So we've already looked at after Adam and Eve had sinned um, and, and God speaking to them and their excuses, their answers. But let's go back and read the, the verses preceding that. So uh, Genesis chapter 3, verses uh, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any fruit of the garden? I'm sorry, from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the tree of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And we'll stop there. So I particularly want to focus here on um, verse 6. And look at just the, the the word picture that the writer gives us here. The woman saw that the tree was good for food. And that the tree was desirable to the eyes. Um, I'm sorry, a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So there's all these ideas of, or word pictures of desire. Like the emotion of the heart has been changed. It's not that Eve had never seen that tree before. I don't think, anyway. It's in the middle of the garden. She had been around that tree but she had never looked at it in the way of disbelieving what God had said. Her emotions, her desires had always been in line with God's desires. So when she looked at that tree, she knew it wasn't for her. She had no desire for that. She looked at all the other fruit. This is mine. I can take and eat freely. But now all of a sudden there's this shift, and she begins to look at this tree with desire and takes from it ultimately and eats. So her desires were not brought into submission to what God had said. You shall not eat from this tree. Her desires took over and she ate anyway. A desire in and of itself may not be sinful, but when a desire becomes so important to us, that it becomes a demand, as in, I must have this, it becomes a form of idolatry, and it is sin, especially when it goes in direct contradiction of what God has said. But even if there are things maybe that you can't find directly in Scripture, but you're struggling with this desire, the desire itself may not be bad, but when it becomes this all-consuming thing, You have to lay those desires, Lord, your will, not mine. You have to lay it out like that. And if you can't come to that point of doing that, then the the desire itself is an idol. Well, let's turn to the next chapter, uh, Genesis 4, 
Don't have to go very far to find another illustration of this. Cain and Abel. So, verses 1 and 2 is talking about Adam and Eve having first Cain and then Abel. So, begin reading in verse 3. So, it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told his Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Now notice in this narrative, it doesn't skip from uh, where it says God had no regard for Cain's offering. It doesn't skip from there right down to verse 8 and say God had no regard for Cain's offering so Cain killed his brother. If so, that might be kind of like, wow, that was a big jump there. But scripture actually gives us some insight into what is going on here Uh, in Cain's heart. It shows us something of how sin was working. It starts by saying he became angry and his countenance has fallen. And then God begins to warn him, says sin is crouching at the door. You must master it. God knew where this was going. He knew what, what the ultimate outcome of sin in the heart that isn't checked, it isn't restrained, it isn't repented of. God knew that. Until this time, there had never been a murder. There had never been an outburst of anger to that extent. But God knew how evil sin was, and he's warning Cain, if you don't deal with this in your heart, be careful. Sin is at the door ready to devour you, and he doesn't. He doesn't heed that warning, and he ends up murdering his brother. But you see where it began. It didn't just jump from one day Cain woke up and killed his brother. It began in the heart. That's where sin begins. I'm just going to read two verses here on a couple others before we move on to the New Testament. Um, In 1 Samuel, after Saul, uh, God had rejected Saul from being king, he sent Samuel to Jesse's house to anoint one of the sons of Jesse and um, Jesse brings his sons in for Samuel to look at you know and the first one comes in and this is what it says this is uh, 1 Samuel 16 6 when they entered that is the sons he looked at Eliab and thought surely the Lord's anointed is before him so Samuel's looking is like this guy right here that's got to be the one But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now we don't have any, really any other dealings with this brother that would really show us what his life turned out to be like. But the Lord knew. 
There was something not right here. Samuel was just looking at his appearance, and you know what? I was thinking about this. That's what got Israel into trouble to begin with. Saul was the one that they had chosen to be king. He was head and shoulders taller than everybody. He looked good, but his heart wasn't right. And it's like God saying, we're not going down that path again. We're not choosing just based on appearance. I want someone whose heart is right. And Eliab, apparently something wasn't right in his heart. The Lord looks at the heart. And then the, the last one I'll, I'll reference here in Second uh, Chronicles. Um, speaking of King Rehoboam, this is Second Chronicles 12, verse 14. Let me get to it real quick. Um, it's just a passing comment. It says, He did evil because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Why did he do evil? Because his heart wasn't right. It's not just because something from the outside came upon him. He did evil. He was an evil king because his heart was not right. Well, then we come to the New Testament, and it's much clearer, I think, in the New Testament. We see these pictures, these shadows, the, um, and stories in the Old Testament that when we look back we say, yeah, that was still there. God was still telling us sin begins in the heart. But then in the New Testament, we really see it clearly explained. And the first one I want to look at is in James. Um, and there's just three of these that I'm going to look at before we close. James chapter 1. James chapter 1 and verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Um, Now, I was looking at this word here in verse 14 where it says um, each one is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So this word lust, obviously, uh, when we hear it, we oftentimes think of it in a uh, sexually immoral sense. But really, this word has more meanings than just sexual immorality. It's talking also about strong desire. The the lusts of the flesh is just the desires that a person has, the strong desires. I could, in a sense, we we might use it more in the sense of um, covetousness or envy, but if I'm lusting after a car... That's not sexually immoral thoughts, but it is. It's the same idea, the strong desire that we have. And so what James is pointing out here is uh, that, let me go through this, it begins when we have these desires. Look at the progression. It begins with lust or desire. I'm going to use the term desire just because I think that will help us understand it a little bit better. Desire if not brought into submission to God, grows to become idolatry. And we already talked about this a little bit earlier um, there in, in Genesis. I must have this. And when desire has taken place in our heart unrestrained, it gives birth to sin. 
In other words, the lust moves from being a heart issue to being played out in outward sinful actions. Now, don't misunderstand what James is saying here. He is not saying that the sin is only in the action and that there is no sin in the desire, the lust, just what's going on in your mind and in your heart. He says lust gives birth to sin, meaning that the lust gives birth to the physical action that is sin. And we know from other passages that lust in the heart is sin because of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. And let me turn there real quick. Matthew 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you uh, to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So notice the comparison here. The law of Moses says you shall not commit adultery. That's an outward physical act, right? But Jesus sets the bar much higher and says, if you look at a woman to lust for her, you have already committed adultery with her in your heart. In other words, the lust, the desire in the heart is sin itself. Because he says, you've already, you've already committed adultery. It's just taking place right now in your heart. It is the sin, the lust in the heart is the sin that produces the outward expression of the physical adultery. Adultery is sin, but it isn't the first sin. The first sin is in the thoughts and desires in the heart. And there is a progression, and it all begins in the heart. And that's why Jesus says to take radical action to stop the progression, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. Why the eye? The eye doesn't commit adultery, right? The reason that Jesus says to pluck the eye out is because the eye is a direct line of temptation to the heart where sin begins to be fleshed out in, in adultery or other immorality. If you cut off the direct path of temptation to the heart, You cut out the temptation that leads to greater and greater sin. Well, two other passages here. The first, uh, the next one is in the same book, James 4. James 4, verses 1 through 3. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Um, For these next two passages here, I want to just read briefly from this book, War of Words by Paul David Tripp. If you have not read this, I highly recommend it. He does uh, an amazing job of, I mean, War of Words, you think of it, it's a book about communication. It is a book about communication, communication struggles. But he doesn't deal with it on a superficial level. He gets right down to the heart issues. 
And that's why I feel like even if you're not struggling with communication issues, this is a helpful book because when we're talking about heart issues, then that's applicable to any area of our life. And so this is an excellent book. I highly recommend it. But I'm just going to read one section here, and he's talking about this verse that we just read. When James asks why we speak quarrelsome words or why we are better at making war than we are at making peace, he does not answer the question this way. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your lack of skill in conflict resolution? You want to avoid conflicts, but you haven't learned the strategies and techniques to be successful at it. No, James goes in a radically different direction. He directs us to examine the desires of our own hearts. What I speak is directly related to what I want. My words are one means I use to get what is important to me. Let's look again at the specific words of this passage. James says, don't they, that is quarrels and fights, come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. According to James, quarrels are caused by desires battling within our hearts. Now we need to be careful here. James does not say it is wrong for us to desire. When you quit desiring, you are seriously deceased. We will always desire something. Notice also that James does not say that the problem is evil desires. That is, that we are desiring things that are bad in and of themselves. So what then is the problem? The answer is found in this important phrase. They come from your desires that battle within you. There is a war going on within our hearts, a war for control. James is saying that when a certain set of desires battles for turf in our hearts, it will affect the way we deal with the people around us. Whatever controls our hearts will control our words. So, again, pointing back to the issue is not just that I've got some communication problems or I've just got to control my anger a little bit better or whatever the outward manifestation is. The issue is what is going on in the heart. Well, finally, the last passage I want to look at is in uh, Luke chapter 6, getting back to Jesus' words directly. And really, I could have led with this one, but I kind of wanted to bookend um, the message with words from, from our Savior here. Luke 6, verses 43 through 45. For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Jesus just says it very plainly here. The mouth speaks from whatever is in the heart. You see that? Whatever is coming out of your mouth is revealing what's in the heart. You can't disconnect the two. You can't say it was the fault of so-and-so or it was the fault of this situation. Just like with the cup, 
that I was shaking. It wasn't the fault of me shaking it that water came out. Yes, the water, the shaking is what was the situation that exposed it, but the water was already there. And it was just, that was the occasion that brought it forth. And again, uh, on this topic or this passage, I, I wanted to just read um, one short section here from this book, War of Words. Jesus uses a metaphor with which we all are familiar, a tree. There is an organic connection between the roots of a tree and the fruit it produces. The same is true with our words. They are the fruit of the issue of the root issues found in our hearts. Word problems are always related to heart problems. And I'm going to interject here. We're not just talking about communication. I think we could say sin problems are always related to heart problems. That's why we will not solve communication problems by dealing only with our words any more than we would solve a problem with a plant's fruit production by dealing only with the fruit. If a plant isn't producing good fruit, there is a problem with the plant system itself down to its very roots. Jesus' brilliant metaphor reveals that our words are shaped and controlled by the thoughts and motives of our own hearts. It is very tempting to blame others. She makes me so angry, or he pushes all my buttons. Or to blame the situation around us, I just didn't have time to sit down and discuss it calmly. Or with four kids in the house all talking at once, a soft answer just doesn't work. Christ says that a person's words come out of the overflow of his heart. I'll stop there. So, out of the overflow of the heart. You know, I was thinking about this sports, a sports analogy here. If you play any sport, there is some um, fundamentals of that sport that you have to master if you're ever going to amount to anything in that sport. You can try and advance and try and advance, but if you haven't mastered the fundamentals, you're always going to be stunted in your growth in that sport, right? So imagine a golfer who is really struggling with his golf game. He's like, man, I just need to get better clubs. Or the balls are just the wrong kind of ball. Or my shoes, you know, if I got better shoes. But you're missing the fact that maybe your stroke, your swing is like mechanically just wrong. If you never address that, then no shoes, no clubs, no perfect ball is ever going to result in a better golf game. You have to deal with the fundamentals, the mechanics of how you're playing it. And so it is in our life. If we never get down to what is going on in my heart, then we're always just going to be putting out this flame and this flame, but something else is going to be sprouting up because the issue is in the heart. Well, in conclusion, this has kind of been negative, and I don't want to end there. Since the heart is the source of all sin, and since the heart is, in other passages, we haven't looked at this today, but is wicked, dead, stony, the lost person has no hope of getting victory over sin, right? If we're saying sin comes from the heart and the heart is wicked, then there's no victory there. The tree will continue to have bad fruit because the roots are bad. 
There may be control for a lost person. There may be control of sin in one area, but there's never going to be control of sin in general. It's always going to be popping up because the heart is sinful. But there is hope, and that's what I want to leave us with. God has not left us without hope. Through Christ, you can be given a new heart with new desires. And I want to just quickly read here um, these two passages from Ezekiel and Jeremiah that are wonderfully encouraging in this battle in our hearts. In Ezekiel 36, it says this, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This is the gospel. Not that we have to fight harder to put down sin in a heart that loves sin. God says he will take out that heart and give you a new heart. And then in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and following. Okay, sorry, I just wanted to... Make sure I start in the right place. Actually, verse 33. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Brethren, you realize if you are a child of God, God has given you a a new heart and has written his law on your heart. And if you are lost... You're never going to be able to fight against sin enough. You're never going to have any mastery over sin. You need a new heart. For the Christian, we are no longer bound to sin. Sin no longer has dominion over us. Romans 6.14, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. The gospel is not that Jesus paid for our sins, but we are left in subjection to sin for the rest of our lives. No, Jesus came to pay for the penalty of our sin and to deliver us from the power of sin. And that's what I want to encourage you with. There, in, through the blood of Christ, we can have victory over the power of sin in our life. Romans 6, six. knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So a final question here. Is the believer free from sin in the sense that they no longer struggle with sin? And obviously the answer is no. Every believer is still struggling with sin. But as long as we are in this fallen flesh, we are going to continue to battle with fleshly desires. But we're no longer enslaved to sin. We have a new master. Really, we should be thinking of it in this way. We're fighting from a place of victory. We have a new heart with new desires. So in conclusion, if you are lost, your only hope is to come in complete 
repentance, complete submission to Christ, and pour yourself out before him. I need a new heart. Humble yourself before the Lord. But if you are a believer, you're not left alone in your battle with sin. And this is the encouragement. You're not alone in this fight. You have been given a new heart. Um, You are no longer a slave to sin. And on top of all that, you have been given a helper, the Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus said to the disciples, if I go away, I will send a helper to you. So fight against sin. Don't give in to it. And when you do sin, don't just fight the fruits of it. Get down to the heart issues. Ask the Lord to show you areas in your heart where your thoughts, your desires, and your will are not in complete submission to him. And as we begin to have victory in the battles of the heart, we will begin to have victory in the outward expression as well. A good tree will bear good fruit. And that's what we want. We want to be cultivating a good heart that will bear good fruit. If the heart is healthy, the fruit will be healthy as well. Well, let's pray. Father, we confess that in many ways this is painful and uncomfortable to even look at and to think about because, Lord, we, we know there are so many areas in our life, Lord, that we see as, as needs. And, Lord, I pray that you would give much help, much victory to each one here, to myself included, Lord, to be able to see sin where it begins Lord, in the heart, I pray that we would all be seeking to cultivate a pure heart, uh, not letting anything grow in isolation, like Andrew talked about last week, to come to the light, to bring these things to the light. Lord, we want victory over sin in our life. Lord, we want to be able to, um, to be able to lay down at night with a clean conscience, knowing, Lord, that there is no unconfessed sin in our heart. So I pray for for help for each one. Lord, give us grace as we interact with one another that the, the fruits of love for you would be borne out in our actions and words and thoughts towards one another. Thank you for this time together here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, amen. This week, Lord willing, is small groups, like Andy said, so Wednesday and Thursday evenings. If you are not part of a small group and would like to be a part of one, it's there's no official uh, roster. <laughs> just contact whoever's leading the groups and, and just so they'll know to expect you. But they both meet out here at the building, so there's plenty of room. Uh, Wednesday night Andy will be leading and Thursday night Andrew and then Lord willing next Sunday we'll be here again at 10 o'clock so why don't we be dismissed